Welcome to the Property Funder podcast. I am here with Mihir. Now, before we start chatting to Mihir, um, some of you will be return visitors to the podcast, whether you're watching us on YouTube, whether you're listening on Apple, Spotify or uh, Google Podcasts. And um, some of you may not be subscribed to us. Please do subscribe. The more the more of you that subscribe, the more we can have interesting conversations with fascinating people and inspiring people such as Mihir, who's with us here today. Mihir, uh, tell us your full name and what your business does and uh, the name of your business, please. Sure, yeah, so I'm Mihir Mehta. Uh, my business is called Sterling Rose Homes. And uh, the business, um, uh, in effect, identifies sites, acquires sites, gains planning permission and develops to sell or develops to invest for the longer term. And that's developing residential property, whether it be um, 100% residential blocks or mixed use. Uh, and so, I'm sure it's pretty obvious there. But if you if you don't know, Mahir is a is a pretty successful property developer. Um, and uh, not too long ago, I don't know if it's still the case. You're even uh, a, a sponsor at Crystal Palace. Uh, are you still are you still a, a sponsor of Crystal Palace? We sponsored them for about three years, and that came to an end earlier this year. And uh, due to the direction of the company, now we've decided to look at other. Um, objectives if you like so yeah not not anymore but uh we uh we had you know a great three years with crystal palace uh, as we were developing uh in and around uh, the lo- local borough there um so it's a fantastic kind of collaboration of getting involved with the local community what first of all how did you how did the opportunity come about to to become a, a sponsor of crystal palace and secondly um what were you seeking to achieve from from that sponsorship because i guess the the nature of your business um, you know, you, you're, you're going to have a, a limited amount of stock, a limited amount of supply. You're going to have a state agent selling the units that you're uh, that you're going to be creating. Um, so, what what was the what was the idea behind the brand awareness there? Yeah, I mean, that it was more a case of um, at that particular time we were growing quite rapidly in the London Bar of Croydon. Um, we were really well set up as a, if you like, a planning. A planning, a town planning machine. In, in that, we we identified numerous sites. Um, slightly before the wave, that's probably the best way to put it. I think around 2015, 2016, we had analysed that you know the local area was going to be redeveloped significantly, but more than it already has, and um, we managed to um, get hold of lots of land buyers. Sorry, landowners, should I say? And in doing that, we we came across hundreds and hundreds of different people who owned some level of brownfield land, which we knew we could redevelop. And by kind of creating a local um, level of recognition through the association with Crystal Palace Football Club, gave us great kudos because I think a number of the people that we were speaking to and in contact with at the time were all um, fully aware of Crystal Palace Football Club, you know, knew it was a local club. And they'd also seen, you know, a few of our developments pinpointed around the club and I think that that just I, I saw that as an opportunity where we can you know get some recognition, if you like, for you know, a relatively new company at the time, albeit with the experience I had prior to that. But it was a relatively new company and we felt that was a, an opportunity for us to create a platform. Um, and the other thing as well, the more personal side of it was um, my first ever game of football. Right? The first ever game of football that I actually saw live was at Southhurst Park. My father took me there, yeah, I think 1992, I want to say. 
um, and uh, it was my first ever game I saw live. So that had a lot of um, uh, personal kind of, if you like, um, resonance and um, association with. So for me, it was a it was a completely proud moment when um, I was on the pitch and we had the Sterling Rose Holmes Crypto uh, um, Palace Football Club shirt um, on the pitch and we took photos and it was a you know, great opportunity there. And also through that, we we met a number of other people which was part of the wider kind of Crystal Palace um, network, if you like. And um, we also managed to get onto FIFA 22, I think it was as well. One of our, one of our hoardings was on, if you, if you played football at Sellers Park on, on FIFA 22 or on FIFA 21, you would have seen Crystal, you would have seen Sterling Rose Holmes on it, which I thought was a nice touch, especially because my son was the one who informed me of it, <laughs> to be honest. So yeah, it was quite a, quite a, a proud moment. I actually remember you sharing that Instagram story, uh, uh, sharing that on your Instagram story. And uh, and I think that's what what got it into my awareness, because I wouldn't have I, maybe I wouldn't have known about it. And as soon as I, I saw that and my, you know, my son as well, it was uh, certainly at the time he was playing FIFA quite a lot. Uh, and so I thought, well, that's really cool. Um, so, I, you know, I, I just thought that that was a really nice, uh, nice way to open this up, because, yeah, having having seen that on FIFA or yeah. you sharing that FIFA excerpt, I thought that that was that was really nice. Um, I mean, if we're going to we're obviously going to sort of touch on your, the backstory and how you kind of how you got here. Um, but I think it's a I think a really natural segue, though, is that you created this brand awareness for, I suppose, local landowners in that area. Um, for, for I mean, for those that don't know, I mean, Mahir develops around around most of London and, you know, we'll get into more of that, but uh, uh, into some of that later. But um, in particular, Mahir has been very active in the the, the Croydon area uh, and Avemore has been a big supporter of Mahir in terms of fun, uh, funding and financing him. Um, the do you, do you think that the create do you, do you think, though, that it was important for you to create that um, that brand awareness and, and trust from landowners, um, particularly, I suppose, because were you structuring a lot of your purchases as as options as opposed to buying them un- the sites unconditionally, and therefore you needed to give? Did you need to give the landowners the confidence that you you would be able to extract the maximum value for them and be successful quickly in you know as, as far as the the planning permissions were concerned, and that if yeah. you were just sort of Joe Bloggs Joe Blogs Limited, that maybe you would have found it more difficult to, you know, to 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 have that that faith and the landowners to have that faith and trust in you. Yeah, I think um, that's a really good good question and a really good point actually because I think having grown up in South London. Um, sorry, one, one second, one second, one second. Sorry. Sorry, Michael. Um, okay, let me just redo that one. I was just sorting that yeah, out. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, so, so that's a really good question um, and a really good point because I think when we first started, um, having grown up in South London and having been fully aware of how the property market works and and generally the people that would own these type of assets, it would be in most circumstances their only home or only asset, right? And what I found is, to be completely frank with you, you sometimes can't with with the property local property property market. It was all about who you know. There's no, there's no such thing about 
um, any, anything about credibility, if, I was honest. If, if you had local agents who had worked with you on a regular basis, um, they would be the ones that would try and you know identify and acquire more sites for you. It was as simple as that. And when we started in the main, when we started prior, well, prior to Sterling Rose Home starting, I, I was mainly looking at conversions on undervalued assets and started from there, if you like. But when Sterling Rose Homes was created, it was purely for new build housing. Um, and at a kind of level where it's too small for your bigger players, you know, your your, your more well-associated brands like the Barretts and uh, Barclay Homes and so on, they'd go for major schemes. So anything kind of sub-20 units generally was all about the one or two local regional players that would pick those sites up. But when there was this kind of process where we knew it, we could see that we could deliver 100 to 200 sites, which are small sites, but getting the planning consent for that um being the key test because you know most people would if you looked at everybody else they'd employ an architect and try and work their way through it we kind of because of our my experience if you like had a a full clear understanding that we knew what we can put on each site now number one identifying that it was was quite easy for us number two actually trying to get the landowner on board for the right money was a difficult challenge and i think because you've got so many people sending letters out and door knocking and all these other smes were in the main, small scale builders or contractors, some of them had a bit of land um, purchasing and, and planning, you know, significant planning experience. But in the main, our competition was very different. It was all about getting the planning first and working our way through. And it was trying to ensure that these landowners knew that they're the, the going into an option agreement or into a purchase with ourselves who could actually deliver. That's the key word, deliver on the planning, because I think Many people could try to and, and and succeed and some haven't succeeded, but we were we were you know assassins at that. To be really frank with you, in the early days, we were you know it was a point of time when we were probably getting a decision every week, one every seven days with an approval. Uh, in the good times of 2016, 2017, 2018 in particular, so I think it was it was a it was a mix of things. You know, trying to get track record, trying to get reputation, um, and also trying to be recognized if you like and i think that that isn't an easy thing to do in south london i think in other areas where there's a lot more money and wealth i think people do their homework a bit differently um sometimes in 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 that particular time in south london it was all about who shouts the loudest who can throw the most out there and actually who's sincere you know who can actually say something and deliver on it versus saying something and not actually delivering on it and i think we were quite lucky that a lot of our competition wasn't weren't in the same if you like position um as we were so it's quite an interesting mix of things there. It's not a straight answer, which I, I'd imagine you'd, you'd prefer. But yeah, it's uh, a number of different element, elements there that come into play. I don't think it is. I don't think there is ever a straight answer when it comes to when it comes to landowners. So many uh, being involved in the strategic land side of things um, rather than the house building side uh, as, as part of a separate business called Charfield Homes. Um, you know, we see it firsthand, actually, that it's just because you offer the right money or the the right structure of deal um doesn't necessarily mean that the deal is going to happen um you know sometimes some i guess landowners you know and obviously you can speak to your own experience of this and i'm sure sure our listeners would be fascinated by it but as i've observed it landowners are incredibly irrational at times um and they're very emotional and they can get very attached to uh you know to the homes or the pieces of, or plots of land um and and you have to navigate that sometimes and you know even if you have and even if you're midway through 
in an option and you you could have done everything perfectly a landowner might not renew your option because they've got someone whispering in their ear um things that aren't necessarily true or correct so yeah i mean i think i'd be fascinated to know a little bit more as to is as to your process as to how you you know how you secure the sites and how you persuade landowners to to work with you because you know what are the what are the key things that you're saying to them because ultimately this the deal structure that you're offering to the landowners probably can be replicated by most people your development appraisal will throw up roughly the same numbers as other people so it's not like you're blowing other developers out of the water in terms of price so you know what is what is the, the total package in terms of the approach as to how you're able to be so much more successful in picking up these sites than you know than the average developer yeah i think that's a, a really good question um i think each deal was so different michael to be really frank with you there's no specifics i think uh, in most most circumstances i'd have um one of our land buyers um, agree a meeting and i will i will deal with every meeting myself personally um, and I think it's my personal touch, my interpersonal skills, my understanding of the planning system, my sheer honesty and integrity and in everything I say. Um, and if you like, even that level of respect as well. You know, there will be some instances where we'll get landowners who would say to us, look, so-and-so has offered us this much. And I said, look, with all due respect, it's an option agreement. It's what they've offered you. It might be more than what we're offering, but I'm a planner. You know, ultimately, I'm not a builder, I'm a planner. I know what I can get on this site and I'm trying to give a fair land value towards you. Um, at the end of the day, we also know option agreements get thrown around willy nilly um, with different figures. And I think, unfortunately, some landowners, it's just that figure where it sticks with them. You know, they might say, I'm not ready now, but I'm ready in a year or two. Oh, but so-and-so offered me £1.4 million for it. And we'll say, well, it doesn't really mean anything because it's an option and only it can only be executed once the planning consent has been delivered. And if they're not in touch, you know, 90 percent of you wouldn't believe it, but 90 percent of contractor developers have got no understanding of the planning system. They then employ architects that do have an understanding, but aren't so in touch with local policy, as well as what is discretional that the local authority can actually approve under delegated powers. You know, these are grey areas in planning, which I, from my previous experience as being a senior planner at local authority level, I was fully aware of. So I think, you know, I knew if, if the planning officer is going to tell me so and so, I knew, hold a minute, hold your horses. You, you're, you know, you're completely wrong there. And I will make sure that that point gets across. But going back to the landowner perspective, I think it's just sheer honesty. You know, there's, um, I think that goes a long way. And I think reputation grows a long way. I think there were some instances where we did one road uh, where we picked up about, I think, one, about seven sites on that one road. And it was, the first chap that we had was retiring and um, I think he was happy with the overall deal and from the, from getting the consent there, the knock on effect for every other one person that road um, was quite clear to see, you know, in that they, the, the reputation and level of honesty I had with the first chap went on to the second chap, then the third one. So between all of them, they realise that you're dealing with someone who's not just talking the talk, but he's walking the walk. And I think the, these are really important things because I think very generally most people would have a separate land buyer doing the schmoozing and the salesman pitch if you like versus the actual developer or the director or the contractor sitting in an office doing their day-to-day -day. there's a, what i call a disconnect between the two whereas with me i personally did it all because ultimately it was my money um i wouldn't understand the landowner 
I want to understand their perspective. And also, I think sometimes you learn to be a good judge of character when you're doing a lot of things yourself. And I think when I came across landowners that I felt for my judgment on them um, in the you know one or two times I met them, I'd very quickly work out whether it's something that I want to work with or not work with. If I was honest, because I think that plays a big part. I, having again that previous backbone experience of being a planner. I'm fully aware when people would come in for planning, option agreement signed, they've been told they'll either resubmit or refuse, it's going to appeal. And suddenly they've got to renegotiate with a landowner in 12 months time waiting for an appeal to be um, uh, dis determined. And, um, you know, the, the deal could have gone out of, out of bed because of that. And if you look at all that, sometimes it's also understanding the landowner, seeing what their position is. Some could be retired. Some could be going through a divorce. Some could be downsizing for whatever reason. Some could be um, inherited through family and friends. So you've got to really take all these factors into the equation. Um, and, and some of them could just be living there as a family and aren't even looking to move. But again, it's how good is that deal for me to try and tie in on a two-year, three-year, five-year play? And that's how we kind of you know did it. If I was honest, and we, but we were aggressive as well. I mean, that's the other element of it. Our team we would make sure we get at least 100 people that we contacted every week. That's how aggressive we were in in, in some parts of London at the time, uh, especially south of the river. So, um, yeah, that, that, I hope that answers your question. It gives you a kind of general idea that, that, that every single one, it's ultimately down to just doing the basics really well, you know, key principles, really. And, and what about, you know, what about mistakes? What about, I mean, ha presumably you're, you're, your your approach would have been honed over many years and then you would have had I'm sure a number of missteps in meetings with landowners what were the key learnings that you had when you met with landowners that went badly and that I guess ultimately fed into the approach that you ended up taking yeah I think um over the years if I was completely honest with you I, I probably can only name five which haven't gone to plan per se um in one in particular, which stands out, was um, it was an interesting one, actually. We we tied up an option agreement. We got the planning consent. Prior to the planning um, being granted, well, so prior, prior to the option agreement, she, I remember the lady was in, going through a divorce and she was selling her property for around £800,000. Uh, we came and spoke to her. We did an option agreement, a very short option agreement. I think it was it was probably nine months, if that. We got the consent within six months. And it, the, the actual option agreement completed around the 12th of January, which was the worst timing, if I was honest with you, from a business perspective, because everyone comes back generally in property, you know, August and December, the worst month for business, because you you have quite a bit of downtime uh, towards the latter part of both of those months. And when you come back, you need to just you need, you need a few days just to get organised again. Um, and in that particular instance, we had left everything a bit late. And what we were aiming for is that we can try and complete towards the end of end of January. I think in those uh, 18 days, we realised uh, that we'd lost the option agreement. But what the lady wasn't totally aware of is that we owned the copyright of the planning consent. Um, ultimately, she sold the land on, uh, she sold the property on to another developer and she made, she sold it for £1.1 million to be precise. And uh, she made a significant gain out of it and walked out of it. And she didn't do anything wrong. But what I learned out of that is her the questions she was asking, the, the way she was operating as a person was very erratic. And I took initially took that down to the fact that she was going through a divorce. 
But then I significantly, then I kind of realized that she was actually, her personality was like this. She was a bit of a, I wouldn't use the word oddball, but I found that she was somebody that in normal circumstances, I probably wouldn't do business with her because I could see that one minute she, on a Monday, she could be fine. On a Friday, she, could be, she would be swearing at me. It was that kind of personality. Um, so I think looking back back at it, I think now when you're investing an option agreement as a business, I think in the early days it was a bit different, but now, you know, it's, it's costing you significant sums of money. You've got to be cautious that if you are doing an option, you're fairly comfortable with the person that you're dealing with because otherwise it can become a bigger legal issue. Um, in some cases, in that particular instance, someone else purchased it, uh, the site, and I contacted that developer and I said to them, look, before you put your wheels in motion, uh, that intrinsic planning consent is mine and you need to pay me some money for it. He uh, didn't take my advice on board. I left him to it. He built the site. And then uh, I did a legal uh, agreement. Well, I did. A, I went into legal proceedings with him. His solicitors agreed that I was due funds and uh, I was compensated um, very well thereafter so I think it's just knowing your your your, your onions really I think some people don't, that's that, that's a latter part but something in, in that second bit it's knowing your onions in, in the first bit I think that's that's one element of landowners I think every landowner has a different circumstance and you don't always know what's going on between between their um their ears and um I think when you look, when I look at it now, it's about being very careful and cautious. I think in those days, my risk appetite for that type of stuff was much different. <laughs> are there any are there any types of landowners you won't work with or won't touch? I mean, I I, I often joke that Richard, my partner in Chartfield, he's he seems to be at his best when he's dealing with, you know, siblings in a probate situation. You know, where where they all want different things. Uh, basically a complete mess a complete uh, is really a nightmare but I mean are there any are, are there any kind of landowner types that you're like your experiences now look these guys are these people are just a nightmare I, I just can't deal with them this is going to be horrible um I don't think there's a specific no I I, I don't think I've got any even though I've gone had a, you know I've had a handful of really poor um, situations but overall now there isn't a specific type i think i could deal with everybody if if need be i think um i'd also be prejudicing myself if i was to kind of have a a view yeah you know, that i wouldn't work with so and so because of xyz i think everybody actually when you when, unfortunately money has no um real barriers in some respects and so i think as long as everything's legally correct you know correct in terms of proceed enforcement so from a legal aspect I don't, I don't yeah, you know, I wouldn't have any issue with anybody going forward. And that way I know my parameters really. Yeah. Yeah. You seem um you know, you're just talking about how you took legal proceedings against that the that particular character. Oh, I say character, I mean obviously they you know, they were developers, they thought they were, you know, probably just being a bit naive and they thought they could go and build out a scheme, um, which you'd gone and done the work on to get planning on. Um so but you know, you, you seem a little bit you seem quite unflappable. Is that the case? You know, you seem to, you know, you 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 obviously have to juggle, you know, hundreds of landowners a week, um, multiple sites, contractors, subcontractors, um, agents, both on the buying and selling side, disputes. You've got to deal with funders as well, solicitors. Mm-hmm. You've got to juggle a lot of plates. Um, and you know, just just the way you speak about you spoke about that le- the the legal situation. You spoke about it very calmly. Um, I can I can imagine you probably were quite calm in the in the moment as well. Is 
is that you is that are you very unflappable are you are you, you very sort of stable you know you, you approach everything with a very stable neutral approach I think I think anything you do in life, it goes back to principles and basics. If you're up upfront, clear, you communicate effectively and you're honest, you can't really go wrong, if I was frank with you. I think it's when someone else tries to I'm a very good chess player. So maybe it comes that back to that, you know, in life when I was young, I used to be an extremely good chess player. And basically in a game of chess, you show your hand by making a move and your opponent can read that however they wish to read it. And I think in in anything, in any business, really, whether it be property or any other sector, I think if you are going to be frank and straight with somebody and, and explain to them look, what you're doing, if you're going to implement that consent, that's my consent, you're going to have to pay me. And uh, they say, look, I've got the best solicitor in the world and uh, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. And I'll be like, look, you don't know your onions. I'm a very intelligent individual. I think if you don't know your stuff, that, that for me personally is more just about knowing your stuff you know being intelligent and articulate enough to even have a conversation with me and say look all right i, I get where you're coming from let's have a discussion or worst case be smart enough to reapply for consent and change it slightly and that that might have a le lesser impact on my copyright perspective but this guy he was arrogant overconfident he knew what he was doing and and I, to be fair it's again knowing the planning system having had years of background you know intelligence and experience all that i've seen this happen before but i wasn't the one with the if you like money or the stake to lose if that makes sense um i was fully aware of it and just maybe my curious mind wanted to understand how the whole system works so i knew my position per se right um unflappable <laughs> i think uh i think i love what i do that plays a big part and i think if someone is not to kind of go by my if you like negotiation or how I put things across um, and they want to, if you like, go, go up against me against in that instance, then I will very quickly know my position and defense mechanism. And, you know, I will, I will kind of uh, act accordingly when necessary. Um, I wouldn't say I'm unflappable, but I think uh, in this space at the moment, I think where I'm operating and what I'm doing, it's quite enjoyable. I, I don't really have many issues. It gets easier as well. I think, you know, in the early days, I'm very, I was very confrontational. I'm a very confrontational person. If I can see, if I'm paying for a service or dealing with somebody and, and I can see they've not got high standards. And I think that's the key word, high standards, right? If they haven't got that, then I'm very quickly either going to disappear from that situation or I'm going to put the person to task on it and say, listen, I'm paying you X, Y, Z. This is the service I expect. If you can't deliver me that service, then let's you know part ways and I think that's very clear cut you know again it goes back to judgment again you know it's like somebody walking in the room to into for an interview if they're not dressed accordingly if they're not speaking to me accordingly and they haven't got certain high standards about of themselves then to be frank I don't need to entertain it I think that's harsh but that's the, the bullish and the real life aspect if you want to be successful you can't keep um, if you like have, having people floating on your boat that just aren't playing their part and aren't of the right kind of caliber and individual so that's me being completely hard but I think these are the expectations that I I have in my brain or in my mind that I need to ensure they are, are put through in motion across the if you like the network of people we use as well as our own teams well I mean I can I can say from my own experience that you're an incredibly demanding individual um, and I think you expect I think you have high standards and and you know, you're always, I mean, I, I sometimes wonder how you had the bandwidth to do it because you're always looking to extract best value, um, you know, in whatever, in whatever field. I think so many people will, 
and, and maybe this is the thing that sets you apart and has been a secret to your success but so many people will um will settle for you know what well, if someone quotes them a price they'll, they'll just settle for it and they'll just accept it but for you i think you know you're you're always willing to ask you know to demand more to ask ask another question ask for well, what, what about this what about this what about this um obviously as, as a supplier there is a limit but at the same time you know i think it speaks volumes as to why i i imagine you're successful and obviously you can respond to this but one of the reasons why i think you've been so successful up to now is is because you are demanding and you're willing to up to ask that little bit more of someone than you, you know than your peers might yeah that, that, i mean I, I, you're, you're probably right i'm probably quite demanding i, I think my wife probably says that about me as well <laughs> but i think uh in general um i think i think it's also a case of you know Maybe when I when I grew up when I when I was younger I just expected more I always wanted more I want I, I, you know I've come from a background where we you know I've built this up myself I've kind of come from a you know relatively stable home and family but you know I've, I've had to create wealth and when you do that I think why why should you expect less why should you go and you know if, if someone's not playing their part I think I, the, what I'm looking for is more service if someone's not playing their part in what the service they provide then why should I accept that? And that I think that's yeah, that's probably a big issue actually in this current generation with the younger followers and listeners here, is is you've got one life, make the most of it. It's not it's not rocket science. This I think, unfortunately, if you look at a lot of people coming through the younger generations, um, there there are there is this kind of you know I I grew up in South London as I said, and I I know myself having been around a lot of people growing up is is just learning how to speak correctly articulating yourself and so if you haven't got that if you haven't got that basic position then you've got to go out there and learn and grow and get that and then get back into a position where you've got an arena where you can activate yourself accordingly from my perspective it's more i expect high standards but also with the demand side of things it, it's done in a gentlemanly way there's a slight difference i think i think um if i'm if I'm in a situation, I'm trying to give you an example sometime, which which is probably a bit more beneficial. You know, if you go into a shop and you say, and you can see the price is 99p for something, and you tell the shopkeeper, give me 90p, I think there's almost an element of disrespect there by asking for that 90p because you know what the price is. The guy's operating from that shop, he's put his price for that to make his margin, and that's fair enough. If I was to go in there and say, look, I'm going to buy 20 of these, right? And I know, look, at other shops nearby, e.g., so and so. I can get them for 90p or 85p, but I'm going to buy 20 off you. Can we do a deal? And he says, okay, look, I won't do 85p. I won't do 90. I'll do 95 with you. I'm quite happy to do a negotiation like that because it's still done in a gentlemanly way. It's conducted itself in an articulate fashion. It's sensible. It's mutual respect. And both, it's down then to both parties to make the decision. If he says no, fine, no problem. I'll walk away. I'm not going to keep negotiating. But I think it's down to finding best value by because of the of that particular conversation in that particular situation um i think there's loads of ways you can you know play this but when you're when you're an sme especially when you're an sme in the first five years um you can be you, you can have moments where you've been waste wasteful where you can have moments where you're not as experienced in some spaces and people are not taking advantage of you but are making sure they maximize their return off you so i think it's always being fully aware of what is real value 
and what am I paying for that actual item, whatever it may be. And it's understanding that and um, then building a relationship on it. You know, I, I think the key is sometimes some people do need a bit of a um, a clear understanding over what my standards are. But once they get that, they get loyalty from me. I'll keep coming back to them and do business with them on a regular basis and and always look to try and find equilibrium with them. I think that's that's the best way to put it, because then you become stakeholders in what you're doing together. So there's a collective, if you like, spirit in that, although initially people may not see that in me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, uh, uh, as, as I said, I, I know I know that firsthand really well. Um, you talked about early life. Uh, you touched on it anyway. Let's let, let's go back, if not to the beginning, but let, let's talk about kind of the start of your career, you know, your teenage years, start of your career. You know, what what you know, when you were a teenager, did you have any particular aspirations as to what you were going to go, what you're going to go and do? Um, and and then I guess we can sort of talk about how how things have progressed since then. Sure. Um, that's an interesting one, because I think I think um, without knowing it, I think at the age of kind of 12 or 13, I very quickly realised um i liked the thought and the feeling of making money and that was i mean i, I can give you a small thing that i did when i was about 12 years old uh, i managed to find a, a local cl- a clothing dealer um, and I, I grew up in lewisham which is uh southeast london this is before the regeneration of lewisham we, we grew up behind the uh, the old army and navy um and then we moved on to grove park uh, which is also in london borough of lewisham on the border with bromley and lewisham so i grew up in an area where um it it was you know there wasn't a lot of wealth around and i think when i when i went to private school where i managed to get a scholarship and went to a school called bishop chandler in shortlands um shortlands in just in beck near between beckenham and bromley and i think when i went to that school it made me realize that there were plenty of parents there who were putting their kids in private school and i kind of if you like observed the lifestyles observed um the way they conducted themselves. And that, that was a great um, uh, awareness for me because it, I, I would ask some of the boys, um, you know, what does your father do? And they'll say, okay, he's a builder or he's doing this, he's doing that. And that opened my eyes up actually to business um, to some degree. And I think I, I managed to get this clothing dealer in Lucian and I used to buy clothes from him at 20 pound a piece. And I have a little price list I made from a Xerox photocopier, which I paid 10p for a copy. And I went around the school and said, who would want one? And I used to get orders on a Friday and they'll pay me on a Friday. I'll go on a Saturday, collect it and then take a bus to Bromley at the age of 12 and 13 and deliver these items. And I'll double my money you know, each and every time. So I'd be paying £20, charging £40. Uh, <laughs> and that, that was, if you like, the start of one of my kind of smaller kind of business enterprises. And that, from that, I realised that there was this thing in me, you know, I don't, I don't think always an entrepreneur is it's got to be something inside you. I think people can be made into an entrepreneur, if you like. But I felt that I had this need in me to to gain, um, have money, you know, make monetary gain from this. So that was always in me. And I think as I kind of got older, I realised that um, when I went to I went to a college, which was a state college, and everyone there was quite money minded, but also very streetwise. So having the private school background and having a state college i quickly realized that there's a lot of bright boys there in the private school who are not um streetwise and i had a lot of guys who were streetwise who had no real not all of them had strong academic skills 
And I think I was a blend of both. And then I managed to get into sales jobs. So many people don't know this, but when I was in university, I did a business degree. I did my business degree for three to four days of the week. And the rest of the time I was working full time as a car farm warehouse employee uh, in the Blue Water branch. So I I'd, I'd bought a car. That's a good, good spot, man. Is that, that is, you, you've definitely got good footfall there, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No yeah, quiet, no quiet days, no quiet days there. Exactly. And uh, again, that blend again of having a basic salary and commission gave me. I, I, I'm making a salary of about thirty or forty thousand pounds a year, and and studying at the same time. I didn't take any student loans out at the time, and it worked. Um, and I think hard work played a big part. Knowing that work-life balance, because I also managed to go out on a Friday and Saturday and have fun. But I also managed to use my time at wisely in between classes and things of that nature. So I think it's just operating your life to its fullest uh, optimum, really. And I think that's something which a lot of people don't always do. I mean, you know, I, I did that as a natural thing quite early on. So there were my early days, if you like, of trying to. There's a, a blend of different things I did there, which kind of, if you like, created a strong foundation uh, of a hard work ethic. You know. Um, if you like wealth creation or money creation I think then what actually happened is um, I was with my father and we went to a property auction I was about 19 years old and my father used to dabble in a few buy to lets um, every so often and I went to an auction and something that stuck out with me it was it was January I think um, going back in the early 2000s and this chap purchased a bit of land for 200 odd thousand pounds six months later another auction which I went to that same parcel of land was in the in the auction with a planning permission granted on it for four houses and it sold for six hundred thousand pounds and for me that was like well done a minute this is magic money here look he's only got a decision notice attached to it the grounds he's not built anything there he's not changed anything he's just got a planning consent and made four hundred thousand pounds in the space of six months and i looked at that and i said to myself right that's interesting so i asked and i wasn't as interested as the refer property i was aware of it but i wasn't it wasn't the margins weren't the same and I spoke to various people, architects, family, friends, various solicitors. How do you get planning? How does planning work? No one gave me a straight bloody answer, if I'm completely frank with you. For me, that was, uh, that was you know, a bit a lot. Even architects, when I asked them, they, they kept giving me gobbledygook. I never had a straight answer. So that triggered me. This was just before my last year of university. That triggered me to contact every local authority in London, which I emailed directly myself. Say, look, I want to work for you for one month for free as work experience. Um, can any of you make July, August of, of this particular year during my, the term time I had to do that, as well as I'd, I'd take an annual leave from Crystal, uh, sorry, an annual leave from Car Farm Warehouse at that time. That's how I did it, right? This is <laughs> true optimization. And um, Barnet Council responded to me and I worked there for four weeks and I loved it. And I travelled on the train from Grove Park to, to Totteridge and Weston where it was an hour and a half either way. So as a youngster, many people would probably see that as a barrier. I didn't see that as a barrier. I saw that as an opportunity. At the end of the four weeks, I remember specifically, they managed to pay my travel expenses because obviously that was a cost. But in them four weeks, I loved it. I really enjoyed the whole process of someone submitting a planning application, how it's assessed, how you enforce, how you validate, how each process of the department work, because there's four separate sections in planning. There's um, validation, there's planning, development management, there's policy and there's enforcement. So I really got a good understanding of all that. And when my degree finished, um, I they, they informed me that they've got job offer opportunities, if you like, and um, uh, I applied. 
and I became a planning officer off the back of that. And that for me was the starting, if you like, points of my planning foundation. I worked there for about nine months before I realized I couldn't really, you know, it was a, the salary was £21,885, which after your all your costs, I realized it's not going to be the, um, it's not going to help me in, in achieving a lot of wealth, if you like, or growth in that sector. So I, I understood planning, picked it up very quickly. And um, within a short period of time, I started a master's degree. And then as I was working at council level, I realized that I could do my 36 hours in four days. And that's what I did. So I managed to get Wednesdays off. I spoke to my team leader at the time and I said, look, I'd like to start doing some consultancy work on my day off after my degree finishes. Um, and I'll ensure it doesn't conflict with the, the, the borough that I'm working in. And they were ha happy with that. No issue. And believe it or not, I then within six months, I employed a CAD technician. I employed a, a, a junior legal admin member of staff who submitted my applications. I went to every estate agent locally that I knew where I grew up. And, and, and at that time I was living in Canary Wharf. So I, I managed to get hold of everyone I could. And from that network, I said, look, I will submit planning applications for you on a no win, no fee basis. And you'll be surprised that that went around everywhere. And I started getting I started submitting more applications than I was assessing in the council off the Wednesday and the Saturday <laughs> and the Sundays. Yeah, and I was, I'd work. Again, hard work ethic. I'd work nights sometimes just to get my applications ready and prepared. But I had a small scale operation. And within about 12 to 18 months of doing that, I very quickly was, was earning more money than head of planning in, in local authority because I was just so eager, um, eager to kind of achieve these goals. And, you know, I remember one of my second payments I received after paying the staff that I had working for me. Uh, I, I bought a car, bought my, I bought an Alfa Romeo actually at, at the time, and I remember it was a proud moment for me. Um, and that was around 2007, 2008. So I think uh, that that these all kind of, if you like, these are really important foundations and and um, experiences that people don't realise or, or are aware of. But these are the foundations that help you build yourself into being a successful successful businessman because. When you start ground up and you understand all these little bits and pieces, you can then speak to people in those roles and support them and, and guide them as well as understand how it feels to be in their shoes and as you're coming up. So I think these are, are really key skills, experiences and characteristics that you just automatically gain. Um, so that was that was kind of how I did the consultancy part. And from the back of that, off the back of that, if you like. I left local authority. I did consultancy for a short period of time because I realized as well, planning was becoming harder because just local authorities were falling apart, to be quite frank with you, in their, their lack of resources. I don't think it's really a lack of resources. I think there's also, a, a, there isn't a hard work ethic in local authority. Having worked in local authority for eight years at four to five different authorities in the plan department, you'd have 50% of the staff that were hard workers. You had 50% of the staff that weren't, but the 50% that weren't were never really scrutinised from management. They weren't really, you know, if you like, not that you should be micromanaged, but they weren't micromanaged. They weren't disciplined. And ultimately, if they got poor management practices, the bigger effect is the hardworking staff realise, hold on a minute, I don't want to be doing that much work now. So let me slow it down. And ultimately, when I look at it now in 2023, uh, it's, 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 it's a complete disaster. But from that all those processes then i i started doing planning options really from around 20 2011 onwards um but again i wouldn't do one or two 
hungry me here. I'd, I'd, you know, I'd look at the planning portals. I'd look at who got refused. I'd contact them, but I'd contact 30, 40 a week. It wouldn't be one or two a week. It'd be 30, 40. And I did it all myself, timed it within appointments during the week. So I, I really pushed at it. And then oh, 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 out of that, you kind of start getting at least one deal a month, one solid deal a month. You get option agreement on it. You sign it up, you get the planning all at my cost. And then you, you, you know, at that time I was flipping the sites with the consent. And if I made 20,000, 30,000, 50,000, whatever it was, I just took it on the chin and I just saw it as business turnover. And off the back of that, I started buying smaller houses, converting them into flats, again, in, in areas where I could see long term capital growth. And what I mean by that is it's regeneration and transport links, e.g., you know, looking at areas like Lewisham, Catford, Bromley, um, Greenwich, um, Croydon, Sutton, Crystal Palace. So I, I kind of got onto that. Uh, bandwagon very quickly but I, I held all the properties at that time because I realized I thought I'll buy a house I'll convert it I can rent it tomorrow and refinance it if I refinance it I'll get all my equity out why do I need to sell it and pay tax that was my kind of ultimate yeah. position and also have the hassle of paying an agent dealing with solicitors holding costs I just thought no let's not do that and it was just happened at that time from like 2011 to 2015 the kind of five or six conversion projects I've managed to do a year I actually started building 50 units a year, basically, indirectly, you know, just by by accident, if I was completely honest with you. And I got to about 200 flats by 2014, 2015. And I realized, right, I need more capital now. And, I've, you know, investors, hard to come by, to be really honest with you, um, for me. Um, and then I'd go to a few family friends and speak to them to try and get something from them for a deal here and there, that, that which worked in some cases. Uh, but ultimately, when I went to the bigger lenders, if you like, the challenger banks and the like, they they just wanted to rip your arm off and they had no appreciation for planning game and things like that. So it was difficult. But then I realized that I wanted to get into new build and I wanted to do more new build options. And at that time, I sort of kind of through my contact base and network, I created a team of people um, and, you know, at my cost and and built a team. And we just and I led that team from day one. Uh, even to today, I'm still very hands on uh, and it's just grown rapidly. And I've, you know, like any good football team, you've got to make changes every so often. And, you know, your planning manager could be a defensive midfielder. You know, he can't, hasn't if he wants to be aggressive and attack it, he's not going to be able to do the, the hard yards for more than two years, three years for you. So you've got to change that position every so often. Contractors, they're only good for you for three years. After three years, unfortunately, they don't want to work at the same rates and levels. So you've got to be able to rotate the squad. So giving you that kind of analogy, but that's ultimately as a manager how I look at it. Um, and being a Liverpool supporter, Michael, you well know that we're uh, in, having that Jurgen Klopp kind of mentality. It's not, not too different to mine. It's always about always it's being determined and having the desire to win. And uh, you know, in some cases, um, you know, pushing pushing the boat out in some instances. And that's, that's kind of the mentality. That's kind of what's been built by me doing this over the years. And hope it gives you kind of general hypnosis of um who i am or how that's kind of been how this monster's been created if you like <laughs> yeah so i mean, I, I mean so yeah it's, it's a fascinating story really of kind of well i mean i, I just i there's I, I see a few parallels with myself in terms of how you were at school and then you know working hard as well in university although i have to say i don't think i worked as hard as you outside of the the, the classroom i don't think i worked that hard in the classroom either personally but um but i see a lot of parallels there for, for myself but I just I, I do love the story you know I do love the story where you're going 
you know, you're moonlighting as a consultant in, you know, on on your day off, you're taking advantage of your flexi time uh, in, in local authority. And then, you know, Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday, and then before you know it, the consultancy overtaken the uh, has overtaken the the time you're doing in the local authority and why do you need to do work the work in the local authority um in terms of in terms of going from like the refurb to to the new build um did you did you have to take did you know were you able to take your construction team with you into the new build or did you did you need to go into a different a different arena in that situation um yeah i think so i remember i had a I had a, a Scottish chap called Andy, who was my kind of refurb conversion specialist. And in those days, he was he was he, he had done all kinds of development work over the years, but he was in his 50s and he had a small team of uh, contractors, labourers underneath him. And uh, I used to work on a fixed price with him. I believe it or not, I was getting conversion units for about £25,000 a unit at that time. And he wasn't capable of getting into new build anymore. I think he didn't have the if you like desire for it anymore he had the experience but not the desire i um also had one or two other contractors uh, a guy called robert actually uh, a romanian contractor who'd again started with small scale refurbs and then moved on to a bit of new build but ultimately with me i i took the because the, i kind of knew he had the if you like skill sets and he was a people person um i i got, got him to do new builds initially for us um, and took that risk if you like and um, I ensured that we oversee everything. We kind of work collaboratively, really, to make sure that we get everything done to the the best way. And he wasn't orthodox in your know, traditional kind of construction um, way of doing things, but it worked for us in the first few years. Um, he was one of them. But over the years, if I was honest, Michael, I, I think without being sound, sounding too harsh, I, I've probably been over, been through maybe 40 contractors. And again, it's down to me being demanding, expecting high standards um and i'm a people person but you know sometimes some contractors you some people had word of, you know that when they shake my hand and do a deal it meant something some of them didn't and the ones that didn't aren't working with me anymore and the ones that did are still working with me so i'm loyal but uh, you know and it is a genuine problem you sit me down you talk to me and explain it all and i'll work with you but i think you've got a lot of in that kind of small scale sub two hundred fifty thousand pound works or sub five hundred thousand pound level works You've got too many cowboys out there, to be frank, and sometimes being able to pinch, you know, find the diamond in the dirt, if you like, is not easy. So we had a few barriers there. But once we got into the new build on a more regular basis and the brand name was out there, especially in some parts where we operated heavily, it became very easy. You know, we had contractors contacting us. But I was always wanting to find people with a little similar background to me, if I was frank with you, in, in that in terms of the story. People that have come from a harder beginning and they know that this work means everything to them. So if, if I, when I look back at the real, if you like, my gold star contractors, uh, the majority came from, you know, Eastern European backgrounds, Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, Romania, Albania. Um, I had a few Spanish, I've had a few South Korean, believe it or not, I've had a few Chinese, I've had a few Brazilians. But I, and I've, I've had English, Scottish, you name it, but it was the Eastern Europeans for me that, I'd shake their hand, agree a price, look them in the eye. We knew where we stood and I'd incentivize them. I said, you do three good projects for me on the fourth one, I'll give you a kicker. So they know a kicker basically meant a, a good bonus payment. And that's how I incentivized them as well. And it was only fair if they've made me money on three, you know, I'm going to give them a little bit of that cut on the fourth. And that's kind of how it worked. Um, and it's still, 
up until probably last year, it worked. COVID happened, things have changed slightly, and I've, I've changed my strategy somewhat. But prior to that, that's how it worked. And it was an old-fashioned, if you like, model of operating as a business person, really. It's, it wasn't really anything, in, you know, in, too genius about it. It was just, uh, it, was, it was what it was, you know. Um, but there was one point I just wanted to add, Michael, actually, which is really a valuable point, um, which I probably didn't um, suggest or state. And one is, uh, in terms of planning, I learned my 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 true education on planning was working that local authority over the eight years I worked in local authority. I, I can't give that. I, I owe I genuinely mean this. I owe my success a large part of it from working in those local authority departments. And it's it's because what I learned on a daily basis, it wasn't someone taught me. It wasn't that I you know their training or their education. No, it was my desire to make sure every case that my teams are dealing with, I wanted to know every nuance. I want to know every intricate detail. If there was an appeal decision, I want to know why that was dismissed, why that was allowed. It was I, I took it upon myself, even if I finished at six o'clock, I'd still wait another hour because I want to read the appeal decision. And I want to understand why did the inspector allow that? So all that stuff, and how my memory works is once I've read something, I've understood it, it just, it just retains there. And then I'll look at case law, it just retains there. So when you add eight years of that type of investment, that's how I call it investment, right? And I put that into the commercial world of planning in today's market um, and over the last eight years or, or nine years or 10 years or so. That I, I can't give that any more. I, I can't, you know, there's no value to it. It's priceless. There's no value to add to that. So again, any younger listener listening, if you want to go get it, that that these are the, you know, true ingredients to follow. Because um, when I did this, I had two or three other people that I spoke to over the years who subsequently went and did the same thing as me. Um, unfortunately, one or two of them weren't as successful because they didn't have the knack to work in local authority. And maybe they were maybe not built as commercially as me. But one of them in particular, you know, he followed my kind of track and he started to then do a few small developments. And when I look back on it, actually, I, I know so many people in local authority from my years of working in them, but I don't know anyone who's actually managed to get themselves into a into owning and running uh, a property development business where they're you know delivering 100 to 150 units a year i don't know anybody in, in planning that's ever done that um, i'm probably the only person in london local authority planning there's obviously planners that have left local authority and gone into private consultancy or work for developers but they don't own the business they don't own the assets um so i just wanted to touch on that you know that local authority was an invaluable invaluable step for me i, I owe a lot of uh, at some time hopefully I'd like to speak to a politician who's got a bit of a backbone, who is actually genuinely interested in housing and communities and and planning, because at the moment that role gets shuffled around from Eric Pickles to God knows who it is now uh, over the years. And unfortunately, that's been the problem with politics. You know, if I um, were ever to see someone who actually I believe has got some concrete foundation to to want to work there for a longer period of time. I would happily sit down with them for free and give them so much advice and consultation over what bridges need to be created uh, and what kind of attitude local authorities need. Because I think that even when I was working local authority, I had someone sitting next to me who's refusing an application that I would say, why are you doing that? I would just contact, I'll make one, one phone call, contact the architect, amend this, this and this, send it to me within the next 48 hours, I'll approve it. That's my That was my proactive mentality in local authority, whereas others weren't the same but 
you know, that's probably the negative side of it. I think the more positive side is, is the learning on it. I mean, you know, it's you've got to give you've got to give it to the planning system in some respects. It's been it's made, you know, ton, ton, tons of people very wealthy um, over the last 40 years in particular. Um, so we, we do owe, owe it some um, respect, if you like, and in some respects, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, look, the, my own experience of the planning system at the moment is, you know, it's compl- it's not fit for purpose, you know, and, and I think you probably would, would agree with that. I mean, it, I can see that the the great things it's done for you, the amount you learned in that system. And I think that you, I would say that you're exceptionally atypical for anyone who's worked in the planning department. I think most people who work in who, who choose to work in planning are not naturally they're not natural entrepreneurs it's it's like any it's like a lot of the consultancy you know the consultancy side of things whether you if you you're a valuer or if you're a um you know or, or if you're a qs or, or you know these kind of trades you know account you know or accountants if you're not in if, if you're looking outside directly outside the, the property sphere you know these types of roles don't naturally lend themselves to um to people who are entrepreneurial but if you if someone like yourself gets a grounding in that space, but you've got that entrepreneurial, hardworking mindset, then you know you've been able to to take that, leverage that, and 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 make a huge success, um, huge success of that. Um, I mean, I, I did want to ask, you know, ask your thoughts on the planning system, and obviously you've given a bit of it a hint as to what's going on there. Um, my, you know, my two cents for what, what they're worth is that um, we obviously have a a, a bit of a you know, a bit of a shit show at, at central government level where you have the likes of Michael Gove who are basically saying, you know, you don't need to have a five year ha- housing land supply. You know, the rhetoric around local plans and what you need to have completely, completely disappeared. And therefore, councils get to sit on their hands and not do anything, particularly Tory councils, um, you know, the more nimbyistic ones that they, they, they don't have to do anything. And then I agree with you on, on the point around the resourcing, because I think the count local authorities are appropriate are adequately resourced but the people that are work there's clearly something wrong with the culture and i think it's got even worse since covid where you know there's a sort of lack of you know lack of presence in in the office people aren't working together and there's no accountability that you know there's what what are the consequences to these local authorities for not approving and validating um and and ultimately giving feedback on on consents there there was once upon a time you know if i cast my mind back 10 years i remember we we had a, a planning application which was successful in tunbridge wells and um you know we, it, we i think we were we were done start to finish it was conversion of an office building with an with an extension uh and um it was some extensions out the back um probably about a four and a half million gdv scheme and we sold it to a developer for about a million and a half. We bought it about 900k and sat the income for a couple of years. The but the planning process itself was, you know, really straightforward compared to what I've seen now. And our architect did dealt with the dealt with the application, and the, he he had a dialogue with a with with the planning officer and a bit like the approach you would take when you were an officer. They said, well, look, you know, these these units here, just can you modify the, the design so they're a bit little bit lower you know you know take this bit out here take that bit out there add this bit here um, and I think we've got something that we can work with we can go with. if I if I compare that experience which is 10 uh, what, nine, eight, nine, ten 9 8 9 10 years ago compare that experience with what we have now 
in within Chartfield, where it took us for a nine for effectively, you know, almost a like for like replacement in terms of height and massing for a nine nine unit scheme, uh, you, you know, edge of settlement. We we had to go to appeal for non-determination because the planning officer because the planning officer didn't even want to look at it, didn't even want to look at the, the application. I mean, how ridiculous is, is the situation where the only to in order to actually get a planning officer to look at something, you have to you have to actually take it to appeal to all representations because because the planning officer is like, well, no, I don't want to I don't want to look at this. Yeah. You know, there's like planning officers are spending their time either doing the major schemes or they're doing, you know, your your PD, you know, your loft conversions, your kitchen extensions. But the lifeblood of the housing system, the housing market is SME developers like yourself. Yeah. And if you and, and they're the ones that are putting in these applications and the plans they want to look at is a complete disaster. Anyway, what, uh, uh, that's my rant over. What's what? Yeah. what what's what, you know? Do you share those views, or have you got any particular do you know what? Uh, differences of opinion? Uh, I, I, it, it varies. I, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, I've got some schemes. So most of our development is within London and the M25. So it's you know generally with London uh, authorities, but there are a few which are in Surrey and Hertfordshire which still come within the M25, like Three Rivers. Mm -hmm. and Rygate and Banstead be an example. Rygate and Banstead, we, we've got an office conversion and extension uh, we're doing at the moment, which we um, got consent from the from Rygate and Banstead about a year or so ago. And they were brilliant. They were exceptional. And, and the case officer to this day has been exceptional. I'll email him. He emails me back within 24, 48 hours. And he's organised. He's on the ball. He's been exceptional. So there are instances like that, which have been great, you know, very similar. Just very recently, we just got a scheme granted in, in Bromley for office conversion and new build. Again, interestingly enough, the case officer for that hadn't dealt with the previous case that the previous landowner had just sitting there. But I took it on board. I inherited that on the new build part. And we spoke to the local authority and we told them what we want. And to be honest, I didn't really speak to them. I told them what I want. I told them this is acceptable. I read the previous appeal. I said, oh, this is what I'm going to go for. I'm going to tell you now. You're going to have to recommend it for approval. And if I go for costs, I'm going to make it clear. These are my costs that you're going to incur. And I'm going to take you to task. And oh, by the way, I've won an appeal against you probably before. And I've got £21,000 out of that last time and took one of your case officers off your desks. I didn't say it in such a harsh way. But what I'm getting at is they could clearly see where I'm coming from. And it worked because they consented the scheme for me. And I've got um i've got spades in the ground getting on with it now so i think it's borough by borough but then i would say as well that you know some boroughs it is down to the case officer but there's there's three things that i, I see as issues okay right number one is management okay most local authority managers are not managers they're senior planners who probably are good enough senior planners um, who know the head of planning or know the team leaders and uh, all right you know Steve's leaving yeah we'll put Bill indirectly Steve's leaving we'll put Bill in that role yeah and that's both basically what's happening I mean I worked at eight local authorities uh, I did five mainly but there's three that I did a small little stint and you very quickly work out the culture you work out the way that things operate in those places some of them are draconian it's still some of them still operate like the 1980s that's unacceptable. They're not digitalized themselves. They've not updated themselves. Now, who could be blamed to that? Not the staff. 
it's management. Management haven't had foresight or any any real acumen to date. Right, we need to make changes here and fast. I've got to give Camden Council some credit because when I was there for a stint as well, they did think about that. They took the view, put the application in. We can determine it as soon as we as soon as we can after the consultation period. We'll issue the decision. I don't know what happened, but it was such a culture shock for the local authority. I think they went back to the normal way after that. Yeah, they did it in 2012, 2011, 2013 for a short stint, which I thought was really good. They actually got other boroughs to look at it as well. But again, it's it's, it's having the private sector mentality in a public sector organisation. That's not easy. So I think management's the, for me, I mean, Croydon, I'm not even going to speak to you about at the moment. I mean, it's diabolical. It's it's come to a point where, you know, you don't want to invest in that borough anymore. And that's me being, I, I, I'm a I'm a big investor in that borough. I do a lot with that borough. And just the general attitude I get from management there, it's just not good enough. And you know, they can blame the resources, they can blame everything they want. Ultimately, I'm still paying a fee for an application. I should get that high demanding service that I, that I expect or give me my money back. I'll go and build it and then let's see if you enforce. So you have to look sometimes, you know, it's not the attitude to take, but sometimes if you want to get things done and delivered in a period of time, you've got to go, you've got to take things a little bit differently. And I think maybe when you're, when you understand a system like I do, there are other ways of, if you like, skinning a cat is probably the best way to put it. But so management is one. The second thing I think is accountability. If a local authority don't determine application and it's been more than six months after determination date, you're meant to get a, a refund. What good is a refund after you've just had eight months of interest payments if you're holding the site? How does that even make any commercial sense? I think accountability is key. If the council don't, prior approval, and this is where I think David Cameron and and um, the Chancellor at the time, Gordon Osborne, actually were going down the right route. And they only came out of power because of Brexit. But they were the ones who brought in prior approval. You know, they brought in the changes used from commercial to resi, office to resi. And as whatever anyone says, that was, that was very, very clever. It was very smart because it meant the council have to approve it within 56 days. If the council didn't approve it within 56 days, well, you got your approval. The problem with that was, yeah, you got your approval, but the council never give you a letter confirming approval. So a lender will say, well, where's your letter confirming your prior approvals approved? So local authorities just go, go into quiet mode. Then you have to go down the Freedom of Information Act and blah, blah, you know, and the road procedures, which then take another couple of months. So what I'm getting at is local authorities have got to be held accountable. They don't, they're not held accountable. And ultimately, if you don't determine the application within 56 days, whether it's a planning application or whether it's a prior approval, I'm sorry, but you've got to approve the application. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, automatically. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And and if there's a and this this is where the local authorities got to be smarter with that particular accountability. Is why do you need a validation officer and a planning officer? Just get the planning officer to validate it, and straight away within the first seven days of him validating it, he should say he should write some notes on it, like I used to when I was a case officer. Is this a goer? Is it a yes? Is it a goer? Is it a no? Does it need amendments? Yeah. Do a quick email and tell them right in seven days. Look, you haven't done a pre-app. Which you don't need to do because a pre-app doesn't even mean anything. It's it's there's caveated to the hell to, to the you know it's fully caveated. So a pre-app doesn't actually mean anything. But they say, oh, you didn't do a pre-app. You should have done a pre-app. Well, I, I don't believe in that. In some schemes for major development, that's why pre-app was there. I agree, a pre-app is required when you're you know when you're putting a major scheme in for 50 plus units or 20 plus units. There's a, there's a view there, and you get you should get a senior case officer with experience who can give you the the, the, the key direction and steer on that straight away. But on your sub 20 units, really, you don't need anyone that much experience. You can when you validate, you can say yes, goer, no amend, amendments within seven days. Just send an email saying these are my concerns with it. Subject to a site visit if you haven't done it or you haven't done it. Right. 
You don't need to deliver a refusal. Just give them that. And that's good enough because you can see that this is where we're going. Then, you know, that that particular agent or architect needs to either wait for the refusal or go work at it and invalidate yeah. the application. If it's a goer or it needs a revision, ask for it in the seventh day, then do the 21 day letter consultation period. And on 28 days or 35 days thereafter, Mr. Meta, this is being approved. This is my list of conditions, which is a standardized document. Send it to me and I can say, right, I'm happy with this. Issue the decision, crack on, get the housing that you need doing. It's not that's not rocket science. So and if they don't do that, well, give me the full feedback and redetermine the application straight away. And if you don't approve it, right, then an appeal process, that means it's three to six months. That would start seeing local authorities and councillors jumping up and down rather than you know having their teas and coffees and and the rest of it that they do where it's just not a good use of time in, in, in a working environment, right? So accountability. The third thing, there has to be some privatization on it. You know, you can't let local authorities operate like this anymore. It's they've had every tweak and, and change in the last 20 years. So I think there has to be private, um, private, some private sector initiative, which probably runs the more small scale, what I call delegated authority, which is minimal harm to the local area, local authority. Those de decisions, which those de you know determining those decisions, so that could be like you know, lo most local authorities get four thousand applications a year on average, two and a half to four thousand. Right? Out of that two and a half to four thousand, eighty percent of those are householder applications for someone's yeah. house extension and all that kind of crap. So domestic stuff, yeah. Which, which, not being rude, I'm not saying suggesting we do this, but you could send that to Portugal, you could send it to India, you could send it anywhere else to, as a back office to run all the documents and paperwork, or get a computer system that says. Is it over this, this, this and that and, and determine that application? And it just needs a team leader just to sign it off saying approve or refuse on the standard template. Not yeah. or, or you could, I'm sure you could design an AI that that probably deals exactly. with most of that, right? So. Exactly, right. Exactly. And the other 20 percent is what you actually get your case officers. You know, each local authority does differ. But in London, on, in the main, you have different teams of between six and 12 people per team. They can then determine the more reasonable stuff where it's more than five houses or more than three units or one unit or more but you know it's 20 percent of your stuff that you've got to really worry about in grand scheme of things right um and that, that's the third element is that change and with that i tie that in to creating a permitted development order for new build development and conversion for up to 20 units because not being rude if you're knocking a house down and you're building another three-story block of nine flats it's all quite clear-cut what the policies say what we can't preempt and read into is the design officer's comments on the roof form on the elevation design and the impact of the character and appearance. So that's really what you go and get a couple of extra design officers who are actually all entwined with each other, who give the same advice out on those aspects of the application, right? And really it should be a case of, you haven't got it right first time, these are the changes. Now, we're not gonna design it for you, but we suggest you do this, this and this, or look at these examples, right? And well, have like a ha have like a, I, I, I think in America, maybe they have like a, a standard house type that, that's acceptable. Well, I know Australia is really well um, because in Australia you have PD to knock a house down and rebuild a house and they've got five different PD examples and you just copy and paste it and in in those areas it's a quarter of acre plot and they're quite systematic in London it is a slightly different terrain it is a different architectural style in every different places but ultimately the London plan says high quality is high quality now there is an issue with that because you have got a lot of low level architects who think they know what high quality is and they tell their client, but they don't know actually what they're doing. So there is there is another issue in that spectrum. But that's then down to accrediting certain architects to work with local authorities 
and pick and choose 15 to 20 that do. And ultimately, the local authority have got to work with those partners. You see what I mean? So those three things for me are the, are the that was three, wasn't it? <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was yeah. three. It was three. Yeah. So th those are the three things that I would I would push for. And without, you know, you can privatise some elements of that and actually make money out of it. Because ultimately, local authorities probably aren't making enough money out of it after they look at all their costs. And I think that's because they're not looking at it commercially. And you need to look at things commercially for it to be able to survive in um, in modern this modern day. Well, we, uh, we, we've had someone who's uh, on the podcast who's about to enter Parliament, or hopefully going to enter Parliament for his sake, a uh, uh, chap called Mike Reader. So maybe we can uh, we can connect you, the two of you and uh, hopefully we can get you in uh, in front of the the, uh, the uh, whoever the revolving door is that, that week of the of the housing uh, housing minister. Um, I mean, in terms of um, in terms of, you know, units under management, um, I know you, you were talk, talked about sort of around 2015 having about 200 units. I know you subsequently, uh, I know this from my own personal experience of the units, the schemes we funded. Um, you, you've subsequently built a number of, uh, of new build units, um, some of which for sale, some of which you've retained. I mean, how many units now, uh, property units, do you do you own, rent and manage uh, as, as it currently stands? It's around the 400 mark at the moment. Um, and by the end of next year, it'll be, it would hit 500 by the end of next year. So, yeah. Um, how is, how is the, uh, I guess, the impact of rising interest rates, is that, I, I guess that maybe causes some headaches, does it, in, as far as um, schemes that made sense for, reta for, for retaining, uh, for rental, become a bit less viable uh, as the cost of holding them gets higher? Yeah, I think we were a little bit, I don't want to say the word lucky because I think you know I was aware that we'll come. There was a, a period of time coming which is going to be difficult. It can't be all, um, you know, it can't always be so positive and uh, profitable if you like over a long span of you know ten, eight, seven, eight, nine years or so. On. So I was aware that we're coming to a slight difficult period, um, just from general vibes you get and instincts you get from doing doing business with various people. Uh, but we were fortunate in that we had one scheme that finished earlier this year and we had most of it all sold off what we wanted sold off. Um, so we were fortunate in that respect that we haven't got any units that were completed that are hanging around, lying around to be sold. Um, so that's that's been favourable to us. Um, we also, if you like, utilise the help to buy space um, in a very responsible way, but we utilise that effectively from 2017 to 2023 really because uh, it finished well, the last sale was i think end of the end of this or end of march this year or end of early may off the top of my head but we um so we were fortunate in that respect and i think as a business though i think um we we've always been you know strong on prs i mean we don't advertise it we don't really talk too much about it if people looked at sterling rose homes you you just assume that we're a house builder that are building houses only but we we own a hell of a lot of property uh, which we manage directly ourselves and you know we we enjoy that we're, we're quite we're quite passionate about that we um also are aware that you know in the, in the areas that we focus in people really are uh, in a difficult time so we've been very um if you like careful um with rent increases and so on and so forth when you when you build a I mean, obviously when we're building to sell and which we did and and so on 
that that's not too difficult when the interest rate rises. When you're still building as we are on other blocks now, which are going to be PRS schemes, we just change tact. So we don't necessarily go for new build 30 unit schemes, which we did last year and the year before. We're now doing conversion and extension and modification to existing builders. So at the moment, I've got no new build schemes that we're building. It's, it's purely office conversions, commercial to resi conversions, but, you know, 20, 30 kind of unit spaces. And it's all PRS. So we're going to literally build them, refinance them, rent them. And yes, you know, again, slightly fortunate that we're, we're not needing to refinance at the moment on much. But in going into the next kind of quarter to two quarters, there will be things that we need to refinance on. And we will have to take a slight haircut, if you like, on uh, interest rates. Uh, I say haircut, but we're going to have to take that on board when we when we rent the properties. But again, rents have gone up in that same time period. So I think there is a case that um, you might not be paying lower interest rates, but the rents that you're coming in would at least service the debt and leave you a little bit of surplus mm. to keep it ticking. And in this period of time, we can withstand that because of the size of business that we are now, we can withstand that, especially because I think, again, I was I um, I met with a few banks in 2018, 2019, 2020, and just before COVID, I managed to seal up most of the portfolio um, on 10-year deals at fixed rates with threes on them. And uh, that has been fantastic because it allows us to, to up until at least 2029 um, to not really worry about any interest. The interest rate hike doesn't affect you know, some parts yeah. of the portfolio. You're, 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 hedged. you're hedged for quite a long long period of time on that, which I think is, is which is good. Um, how many staff have you got at the moment? Because I guess between management, the management of the properties looking for new sites and then, you know, the construction and everything in between, um you know you can't do it all yourself so how many of you are there uh now in total across the group so uh we've broken the the team if you like the group broken into three spaces there's land acquisition and planning which um has three people working that department including myself yeah um and in the uh development team it's a bit much bigger so there's probably about directly about eight people that work within the development team. Uh, in the property management team, there's only four people. So four people oversee the portfolio. Yeah. So get, it's quite a, it's a quite a lean business. You know, I, I think most people will, you know, I've, I've gone to other offices with similar companies, um, similar sized companies, and they'll probably have 20 staff and people double edging whatever they're doing. I think uh, we, we've got a very good system in place. We use technology where we can. Um, there's also improvements still to be made in some parts of it, which I'm working on. But overall, you know, to have, you know, directly sub 15, you know, sub 15 or so people in total um, is pretty is pretty lean. Mm. Yeah, I mean, especially considering, yeah, considering the turnover of business that, that you are, you know, if you're going up to 500 units plus, um, you know, plus the sort of development turnover as well. Um, yeah, it's quite significant. Yeah. Um, on, the development, on the development side, we're, just to give you an idea, we're uh, we're about 50 million a year, circa 40 to 50 million pounds a year turnover um, through the relevant SPVs. And then from the property management and investment side, I think it's uh, somewhere between three and a half to four million pounds yeah, yeah, turnover on that side. So just to give you a, on a broad brush, 
yeah I, the, that that's sort of the, the property management side of things I guess uh, that was roughly the order I was kind of thinking so you're 400 units at 10 grand a, a unit rental then that's kind of that is that sort of ballpark yeah so it's quite quite significant I mean it's yeah very very lean operation when you put it into that sort of context um it, it just talking about funding for a second as well I mean we took you mentioned 2015 challenger banks giving you a hard time I think that the um, I mean, 2015 is when Avonmore was established. I think that the specialist finance landscape in the second half of the last decade really evolved quite dramatically in a positive way uh, with the emergence of, of businesses like Avonmore. Um, it, I suppose in many ways, keeping, you know, keeping the challenger banks honest, um, you know, lots of lots of entrants and uh, specialist entrants. Um, how did you how did you go about? you know financing the the development side of things you know was it was that predominantly organic organically funded or uh and you know you know and you know how how you know and and from a senior debt perspective you know what were the you know whether whether was there a range of people that you're working with um you know obviously you know we can briefly touch on i think how and maybe we can talk about why maybe we've we've worked quite well together as well yeah sure um I think I think it's a uh, you know it's it's a the whole arena of of small development finance if you like uh, is challenging. I think initially we used to use brokers and through brokers we'd get introductions. But when you did all the numbers on it and you looked at it, you kind of thought to yourself, right, look, because I'm starting off, I'll take a few risks and take a few punts, and away we go. And bearing in mind, I, I don't do one development at a time. I'm probably doing in those times I was probably doing somewhere between ten to fifteen a year. Um, all relatively small scale, you know, sub 20 unit stuff in the main, but um, it was it was a very aggressive operation. Um, and I think over the years, every lender I used, uh, and they ranged, you know, you, you you've got your kind of, I don't want to really name too many names, but you got your you, you've got your kind of bridging stroke development guys, you have got your offshore Jersey based development bridges or lenders. You've got your uh, you, you've got your your North London if you like uh, your North London kind of group of lenders if you like as well. Which when I went through all of them and I've been through all of them like like contractors I've been through thirty to forty lenders I've probably been through thirty to forty and in a way it's a good experience because what you then do is you you really can pepper pot who should go where and who you utilise for what and who you never use again right <laughs> and. It's all about relationships. How I looked at it, I always, I always was quite headstrong that I'd be doing this for a long time, and I still am going to be doing it a long time. Nothing's changed there, and I think it's about building relationships. I think none of these, all these lenders would see a smaller face or smaller name, and they just look to say, right, the minute I can get you for something, I'm going to pinch you for something. And that was a general attitude, yeah. And the thing is, when you're working the smaller stuff, that's where you're working on those. You know, I don't, we never worked on small margins, mind, mind you. I think a lot of other smaller players would pl- work on smaller margins. Because of my planning experience, I always managed to get significantly good returns because of how we acquired and identified and, and got planning consent. But in the main, the majority of lenders uh, would, you know, difficult characters. I, I can name many that I would never use again. Um, but I think I got to the point where 2015 to 2016, 2017, I managed to get a relationship with um, one or two Jersey-based lenders, 
and it worked for us on the new build side of things. They weren't built to provide new build homes finance, but we did manage to get a significant proportion of the um, land value, well, if, if you like, the planning land value um, paid up front, where we then would use a little bit more equity and build it out. So these, at these times, you know, you're building new build blocks for say six, seven hundred thousand pounds a block, and we would manage to buy a site for seven hundred, get the planning gain, which would mean the value of the site is say one point two. The lender will give us say a million on day one, and then we'll add a bit of equity onto that and and build it, sell it, or, or retain it, whatever it may be, and then go again. And that particular lender liked. I think I got to know the actual lender one to one. We 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 had a bit of a rapport. We got on with each other, and it worked. And as as the business grew bigger in the type of size of developments that we were doing, where we've gone from, you know, one to two million, we, most of our stuff was three million GDV, if not more. Uh, and that's when we kind of were looking out for other lenders. And I think it's a bizarre story how we met actually, Michael, because um, I sold a site for planning gain. Um, that's right. Yeah, in, in Croydon, of course. Where else? Croydon, yeah. And uh, it, it was a it was a nice deal. We paid about seven hundred for it. We sold it for one point one on a flip and it just so happened um off the back of that the lender the the, the developer who purchased it off me sent sent uh, so you got yourselves involved even more to lend against it and it was when i think someone else had got in touch with me i think a, a value we, we were do, we were doing a i think we were doing a fraud check and we uh oh, right, sell it, a fraud it. check so we, made, yeah. we were just and i think that's how the the conversation the relationship started that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And I think you were asking me questions. I think you guys were asking me questions on uh, on various aspects of that development and so on and so forth. And then off the back of that, I said, oh, you're a lender. We started talking. And yeah. Yeah. But to be fair, we ne- we've never looked back since, Michael, to be honest, no. in that period of time. So, yeah. No, I, I think you you were quite different. I don't know if it I, I don't know if it one of the reasons why it worked well. Or we worked well for you was that um, you what you wanted you asked us to, to structure um, the loans in a slightly different way so that we'd effectively maybe would give, you know, quite a lot a lot up front. And then you'd say, look, I don't I, I only want to borrow the I want to borrow the um, the build facility in chunks and, and we'd structure milestones. So milestones where the, the project needed to be at to, to be to be able to release that chunk there and you know and ultimately the, for us it was attractive because the, the total lend was always quite conservative in terms of a loan to gdp perspective um but also it's just it it was it, it really twigged to me as to how mindful you were about um saving money because you you know you didn't want to have you wouldn't be subject to non-utilization fees you wouldn't be subject to um you know effectively interest on you know interest on on interest on interest you facility you know the facilities you know what we call facility c which is the interest roll up so you'd only get charged interest at the point where you would be drawing down on that and also potentially saving yourself fees and, and that sort of thing so uh, i think to my mind i think one of the reasons why you know at, at the time we were a relatively small lender why i think we were attractive to you as a you know prolific property trader and developer um, and obviously you can speak to this yourself, but w- was because we were willing to be flexible in terms of structuring and we were willing to work with you in a way that I think if you present that, you know, your your natural home in a lot of ways, Mahir, is 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 a challenge is the challenge of banks and possibly even clearing banks. But to be able to structure the deals you where you wanted to, 
there's no way there's no way a clearing bank or a challenger bank would ever countenance structuring those deals that way because you know they're like no we have to do it this way you know it's like painting by numbers if it doesn't follow if you aren't painting by numbers then the whole thing's the whole thing will fall apart um you know because it clearly in some of these places in some of these places the people are incapable of independent thought uh, and intelligent thought um so i think that's one of the reasons why i think it's worked quite well between us but uh you know historically in business you know from a business setting um i think we've probably gone a little bit more conventional in how we structure some of our deals lately but um yeah i, I don't know if that's uh, i don't know if that's something that you would agree with yeah, no, I think I think it's fine actually. Now when I when I look at it, I mean when I look back at it now actually, I think that time it was the business model was very different, if you like, on new build and so on. But now how it's structured is more in keeping with, if you like, uh, the more traditional methods of doing these things, and uh, we're fine with it, and and it works. You know, as you can tell, over the last, I think over the last probably two three years, at least the last three years, it's been much more traditional how we've been lending with one another. Um, and it's uh yeah it's been it's been great i mean i think it's uh overall it's worked out really well to be honest, especially on that development division that relationship and being able to speak to your guys one-to-one see that's really important to me i think that's also going back to like having high demands or high standards if you like it's yeah if i can pick up the phone and speak to somebody and we can clear the air on whatever it is there and then and move forward that's really important. What I haven't, you know, I think just generally what anyone hasn't, what I, don't, other, I can't speak to other people, but what I don't want to do is is go backwards and speak about things when we're all trying to work in a progressive and positive fashion. So it's been fantastic that I can speak to your colleagues one-to-one. And even when we're putting deals together, um, you know, that that kind of ongoing relationship and probably my reputation in your office, actually, because when I speak to a few of your colleagues, they, they say, oh, it's me here, yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, guys, but I think it's always it's worked. It's worked really well. I think it's always respectful anyway. You know, I think there's a great appreciation of how you know of 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 how, uh, of how important a client you are. I mean, every, all, all clients are important, but you know, clearly, what someone like yourself who's you know who's borrowed from us and repaid us you know repeatedly over many many years now, and um, you know, naturally it, it, that that's a relationship we take we'll take very seriously and we'll, we'll value uh, you know value highly. Um, I, I'm conscious of time, so we, you know, we can, um, you know, we can sort of start to wind down. But um, one of the things that I wrote down, and as, as we've been speaking, is I wrote the word burnout, and um, the intensity which you kind of burn at is you've been burning with that intensity for over 20 years now, um, and you're still a relatively young man. You're about the same age as me. Um, how you, how you, how do you sustain that? You know, how do you prevent yourself from getting burnt out? Yeah, this is, I guess, a bit of a lifestyle question. But like, what you know, you know, you're clearly working 50, 60 plus hours a week at minimum. How do you, you know, how how do you stop yourself from burning out? You know, where does the balance come from in your life? Yeah, um, I think that's a really again good question. I think uh, that this role is highly stressful. You know, highly stressful role, and I think. Over the years, I was a lot more intricate with every decision making aspect of the business, you know, in the early years, just to ensure I fully understand it. Now, um, and I think one of the other good things I always did from that 2009, I remember this, is I always made sure I had a, I had a weekend away, whether it be within every six to eight weeks. Um, 
And having a weekend away every six to eight weeks gave me something to look forward to. It gave me a chance to organize myself to know that I'm going to be going away, have something to look, you know, look forward to organizing myself and indirectly giving me that, if you like, rejuvenation, that downtime um, to enjoy. And, and I kind of always kept that work life balance through traveling and working. Um, but what I've managed to do now is you know, the business has grown a bit you know, significantly over the years. And the key thing I've done is the art of delegation in that certain parts of the business is delegated to certain people to be responsible for things and, and they update me on a on a weekly basis or I, I'm updated or we, we have a sit down and every week I'm updated on certain aspects of it. And I think that's that's pivotal, that's paramount in in um, any operation. And most crucially is I will lead on all the priority aspects. So I have a list of priority tasks that need to be dealt with in that week. Uh, and it's partly delegated, partly dealt with myself, depending on what it is. And it's making sure we get those out and deliver on those and execute those as quickly as possible. Um, and I think it's, you know, as part of that burnout point, exercise, sports, social things, all that keeps me balanced. I think I, I, I've had moments when I've been exerted. I mean, that, I probably say to you last year at some stage, I probably was at a point where I thought, bloody hell, this is really, really tough. Um, you know, should I continue doing this business? But I think when it's hard, it just makes you tougher and, and it builds more character. And I think 2017 and 2022 for me are the two years where I think I've kind of almost re-engineered myself and just made small tweaks to how I operate um, in a business owner or business founder or director perspective just those small tweaks to ensure that I'm getting that work-life balance. Because if it's all that way, eventually you're going to pop off very quickly and very early. So it's it's about tweaking tweaking yourself as and adapting yourself as and when, and and obviously you know bringing in the right people where necessary. I mean, a good example is um uh, about two years ago um I brought somebody on board, and and what's happened is he's now kind of overarchingly seeing the whole property management division. So I don't necessarily need to get involved with apart from key decision making i don't need to get involved in that at all so my day-to-day -day is ensuring that any sites we acquire any planning that's got to be chased or any development finance they're the three things i would generally look at on a day-to-day on a -day basis um and then my development team is, is delivering on the product but i'll do that on a thursday so organizing your week is also really important so mondays i'm in the office Tuesdays is usually construction meetings, Wednesdays is planning, Thursdays is site visits, Fridays is payments in the morning, authorising payments for everyone, and Friday afternoon, a mixture of accounts and any other miscellaneous bits that we got to touch base on, really. So that's how I work my week. Um, I'm not I feel, afraid of I feel, well. I feel like you missed out Saturday and Sunday, though. I don't work Saturday, Sunday anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, since I had my kids, I've I allocate the whole weekend on Friday night. As well, I, I might go out, but on, I'll week, I allocate the weekends for the kids and, and obviously also the weeknights as well. But you, you'd be surprised how much actually gets done on the phone. So I can be anywhere in the world now and, and my, my phone, you know, seems to be a, a great tool which uh, ensures that I'm on top of everything where necessary, really. So it is, it's good management. It's about organisation, I think. And um, that's probably one of my key strengths. You did a lot of travelling. Uh, you did a lot of traveling last year didn't you because i think you Sorry. celebrated your 40th birthday and right. and then yeah. you 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 were doing an awful lot of traveling there and um you know because you, you talked about 2022 being a difficult year was you know did i guess was the tra was the traveling 
was the traveling kind of part of it as well which was to enable you to kind of refocus and reset uh, yeah no I, I don't it, it wasn't that part actually. i think tw- when i say 2022 it's probably the latter the last quarter of 2022 and the first quarter of 2023 as a combination is probably the mm-hmm. toughest period only because we had a lot of change in the business lots of different things happening and and it's just making sure we make right if we're making the right decisions and so on and so forth the, the traveling part if i was really honest with you i'm quite fortunate i've got you know two to three members in the team which are absolutely uh reliable you know i can depend on them any time of the day They're, they are solid members of staff you know, in the team which uh have hold a lot of value so you know when i was away and so on during last year I don't think it made any difference actually to how the business was run. There would be some aspects of negotiation or, or things on nature, but again, I'll articulate that on an email where I can, where I can get away with not meeting someone in person, do it on email. And usually, again, we work, most of our relationships are long standing relationships, so people understand each other. Uh, it's only really on new build or, or new acquisitions, should I say, that I may need to meet an owner and so on and so forth. And, and, and that, that from time to time would just delay it in between the times I was away. Because I ensured that I'd be, you know, back every at least 14 days if I could. Yeah. But on that note, it was 40 cities for my 40th birthday. That was my in within a 12 to 18 month period yeah. I wanted to do, and we managed that, to do that. It was un, that, that was very impressive. It was uh, yeah. unreal. It must have been quite the experience. Um, just touching on those trusted people in 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 your company, um, knowing how demanding you are as an individual, um, of 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 your staff, uh, you know, once you've got a good once you've got a good member of staff, I'm guessing you're going to work very hard to keep uh, to, to keep hold of them. Um, what's um, you know what are the key things that you do to retain those top those top staff, especially given how demanding and exacting you are of of the of the, of the people that of everyone that works with you, whether inside they, or outside of the business. Yeah, when, when they hear this, they're probably going to be laughing. Um, that's a good question. I think I think if I was honest. Um, Anyone in my team generally, I'll always do my best to ensure that I that you're learning from me. I'm making you more knowledgeable. I'm improving your day-to-day practices, how you operate as a human being. There's a lot of other things that come into my my operating skills where that is drawn onto them. And, and actually they see the benefits, they understand it, and they want to apply them. They're also extremely hardworking. And you know, taking all these kind of, if you like, fruits, it works as a combination, works great. In terms of keeping them on board, I think that those three, you know, three people I'm thinking in my mind are, are extremely loyal to my business, extremely loyal to me. And I think they know that in any situation, if they wanted assistance or anything outside of work, they could depend on me for it. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you have, to, if you want to ensure you have people working with you on a long term period and also um, they feel comfortable and they're, they're learning on the journey as well. You have to also assist them in their day-to-day life, and I'm I'm probably fortunate now that, you know, if there were any requests or anything they wanted, whether it would be assistance to buy a house or whether it would be, um, you know, anything, time off, whatever it may be, they know that they can speak to me about it and I can have a serious conversation with them and assist them. And I think you've got to do that. You know, if you want to ensure you've got the right people with you and around you and also that they're going to continue to deliver and maintain to deliver so they've got to have a similar attitude and aptitude as you and i think those two to three people i'm referring to are, are, are very similarly minded to me and i think that helps uh, extremely you know it gives you that core if you like team that squad which uh, ensures that you know we can rotate everybody else 
as and when or bring other people on board as and when um, but the core has to stay there and that's quite an important tool um, and hello financial incentives also apply in some instances as well so you know i'm always there to kind of try and find that balance well um it sounds sounds like you've got some uh you know you're lucky to have them but perhaps uh, you know they're also lucky to have you around as well um last question from me and and that is you know if you were to speak to i don't know you can pick a, a point in your in your earlier life but if if you were to give yourself a kind of a bit of a pep talk or a bit of guidance uh to your younger self what you know in 90 seconds or less what what would it be um i could give myself a pep talk what I say, what would I change? Yeah, I, I think I think I've managed to take all the fruits and positive elements. Out. What would I have changed? I probably, um, that's a really good question. I actually haven't got anything. And that sounds as harsh as that sounds. If there was anything I would, I'd probably say I wouldn't mind going a little bit slower. A little bit Interesting. slower. And enjoy the moments a bit more. Um, I think because we were working at this breakneck speed, accelerating, accelerating, accelerating the whole way through. I probably, I mean, I enjoyed the journey through the fruits of my labour. I probably didn't have enough time to enjoy some of the, uh, if you like, successes of completing a development because I was already onto the next one in my mind. Um, so I'd probably say enjoy the enjoy the moments a bit better from a work perspective. From a personal mm. perspective, yeah, I enjoyed, you know, I've continued to enjoy it, but it's from a work perspective maybe savor the moment a bit more from a working environment perspective where possible so smell smell the flowers a bit more yeah okay yeah. Yeah. well Mihir, that brings us to the end of uh end of our conversation uh it's been fascinating i think we could probably uh go another hour and a half two hours yeah. frankly um and maybe we can say that for a round two um, but it's been it's been great to welcome you into uh, the property funder podcast uh, community and um I hope our listeners have, have loved it. If if anyone wants to reach out to you, get get in touch with you, what's the best way of them to get hold of you? Yeah, just drop me an email on mm at sterling-rose.co.uk. Okay, super. And any social media handles or anything like that that, that yeah. people might be able to follow you on? Yeah, sure. Instagram, which is uh, at Sterling Rose Homes Group. Um, if you just give that a try, that should hopefully get, get through to our Instagram handle and uh, that, that will come through to me. Okay, super. Well, um, Mihir, it's been an honour and a privilege and uh, well, we look forward to seeing you again soon. Um, so thanks very much. Excellent. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for the opportunity. All it's the best. been a pleasure. Thank you. A big thank you goes out to the official sponsor of the Property Funder podcast, Avonmore Capital, a property bridging and development lender located here in London. They, as much as me, understand the importance of somebody's story and how they got to where they are. Lending on projects from just £250,000 across the entirety of England and Wales, their understanding of all development backgrounds and can help support you at any stage in a scheme, even if you just have one brick down. Visit www.avonmorecapital.com to find out more about how they can help you in your development journey. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you can go away having learned something new and even picked up some new things to apply to your day today. Catch us in the next episode for another interesting story.